Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Ryan Koppelman never stayed in his lane. I don't know that he even has a lane. He is a showrunner writer, creator of a show called Billions. Right now, that's his main gig. He's written a number of movies. He's been a big shot A&R guy during the heyday of the recorded music industry. He's written more songs on his acoustic guitar during this pandemic than I have. He's written more songs than I and Charlie Crockett put together have. Um, But man, he is... He's a dude with a big engine, and he is super thoughtful and really smart and funny. I love getting to speak with him. He's got a lot to say, and it's really useful. He recommends a book during the course of this conversation that I read a long time ago without fully committing to, and I have decided I'm going to go back and revisit that book myself because he made it sound like something that could really work. He makes reference during our conversation a few times to Jason. And for those of you that may not be on the super inside of the Americana songwriter world, that's Jason Isbell, who is a brilliant dude and somebody that Brian and I are both friends with, I had never spent any time with Brian or gotten to really talk to him before this. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to him for Wheels Off. I've made this point before, but it's worth making again. I get more out of making this thing, Wheels Off, than maybe anybody who is listening to it, just because... These are conversations that I'm dying to have with people that I admire. And Brian is right there at the top of the list. He's just so cool and so, you know, just so, so wide ranging in the success that he's had. And I don't mean like commercial success necessarily or, you know, monetary success. I just mean like he's done a lot of stuff at a high level and he's lived an examined life. And I think that is a worthwhile 
perhaps the most worthwhile thing one can do. Anyway, without further ado, please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Brian Koppelman. Welcome to Wheels Off, Brian Koppelman. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure, man. You're, uh, I've listened to your music for a really long time. Well, that's, uh, that's, that means a lot because you know your music, and that's really where you started, right? Yeah, I, I had a, a strange journey to this place, I guess. Although now as an older person, as a 54-year-old, I, I, I don't think it's as strange as maybe um, at times along the way. I think a lot of us find our way more slowly than originally we imagine we're going to. So, yeah, my, you know, I was, I always thought I'd be in the record business. My dad was a record producer and a music publisher, and I grew up in recording studios with him. And I really, you know, grew up talking about songs more than anything else with my, with my dad. He was a businessman, but he really loved songs. And we would sit and really break down what made a song work or what made a song not work because that was his job as a publisher in the old days, the way he came up. And I don't talk about this very often, but you're a song person. So, I mean, the way my dad came up, you know, uh, the the power that he had or the way he could get in rooms was by having songs that everybody wanted to record. And so he had to train himself to be really great at recognizing what that was. And so, you know, he was the guy who gave If, uh, if I Were a Carpenter to Bobby Darren, you know, and uh, he gave Here You Come Again to Dolly Parton and Southern Nights uh, wow. to Glenn Camp. So, he he was just around all of that stuff and and we would talk about songs and i i really learned at his feet and he would took me really seriously at a young age so he would play me stuff at 11 and 12 and we would talk about why a bridge worked or why a bridge didn't work and when a song needed a bridge although he pretty much felt the song always needed a bridge and it was lazy <laughs> not to have a bridge even though a lot of people i talk to now are like ah just throw a solo over that but my father was very classical in that way i mean he's 80 years old and he's still um He's still in great shape, but uh, he doesn't, it's funny, he doesn't care as much about, um, we don't talk about songs that much anymore, but so I always figured that's what I would do with my life. I loved it. You know, growing up in recording studios, man, it's a crazy, incredible thrill and gift, you know, and I would sit on the couch in the back and um, just listen to the way the musicians talk to each other and listen to the way the producer talked to the engineer and um all trying to accomplish the same thing. And, and there was something so mysterious and magical about it. Even if you were with people who'd made many hit records, they could miss as often as they nailed it. And it was fascinating to me, even as a boy to watch. And then, you know, fortune sort of favored me. I went to college and uh, stumbled upon Tracy Chapman and helped make her first album. And that sort of threw me into doing that for like nine years. Uh, and I, there's a lot about doing that. I was an A&R person. There's a lot about that that I loved. I loved being around artists. I loved being in the studio with them. I loved making records with them. I hated the fact that when you're an A&R person, you are, by definition, kind of in between the business side and the creative side. And you're often put in a position, especially back then, the way the record business worked, which was built on a lot of lies. As you know, man, you know the way records were called hit records then was mostly built on lies, uh, relationships between sales guys and rack jobbers and retail. And they would sort of just decide what albums were in the top 10. Uh, and before, you know, before SoundScan came along and, uh, before radio airplay was really, um, measured, it was the whole thing was a, a Ponzi scheme. 
So as an A&R person, you would be put in a strange situation of having to make representations to your band that you would find out weren't true. And I hated that. It made me miserable. And um, the business itself got me, kind of ground me down. But luckily, right around then, I realized, you know, I'd had a young kid. I, ha- I was young, pretty young, 29 when my first child was born. And I, I realized I would be a shitty dad if I didn't finally admit to myself that I wanted to be a writer and I really wanted to be the artist. I didn't want to be the one shepherding the artist and, um, you know, went into a basement with my best friend and wrote a script and was able to sort of change my life. Luckily. God, I love that. Well, so we're going to come back to that. I guess I want to start, let these listeners know the context. Um, what is it that you're working on right now? What creative project are you working on? And I know that's a weird question given the pandemic and everything. And, um, and how does it light you up? So, yeah, well, um, during the pandemic, we've been we finished writing. We had basically finished writing season five of Billions, which is the show my partner David Levine and I make. He's also who I wrote the first script with. Uh, and Dave and I are the showrunners, executive producers, you know, main writers of the show. And um, so working on Billions and already sort of working on writing the next season, we finished this season, even though we've only shot. We only shot seven out of 12 episodes, so we'll go back and we'll shoot the final five of the season, and then eventually I think we'll shoot the next season. Um, and I've, I'd say the other thing I've been doing, Red, is I've really been writing a lot of songs, and that, that's been, for me, um, a totally joyous thing. You know, I'm, uh, I journal every day, and I meditate, and I do all sorts of stuff to keep myself moving forward, but I, uh, out here, Amy said when we were coming, uh, we left the city, we got out of the city, uh, to a place a few hours away and um i brought my guitar with me and it's been a great salvation you know it's uh just being able to write songs for myself and then i started co-writing with some friends and actually um got a song on a i just got a song cut on a huge artist album which is amazing <laughs> to me uh we wrote ended up writing it together i can't talk about who it is but this guy's become a friend now and um he just sent me pictures, video of him recording the song, which blew my fucking mind. So that, <laughs> those are the other, that's the other thing I've been doing. I, songwriting is so hard, and, um, but when I'm doing it, the kind of laser focus you need is so great because the whole rest of the world recedes. Yeah. Well, it's funny, and I wonder if you have the same experience. Uh, I also studied, I know you do Transcendental Meditation, Um, I also was inducted into that when I was 19. My mom had gone through a divorce and she thought it would be good for her and I to learn transcendental meditation. And it wound up being something that I've carried now for the last 30 years of my life. Um, And I don't practice as much as I used to, but I feel like it informs so much of the way I respond to the world. And I see these giant similarities or these, these overlaps of the Venn diagram between meditation and songwriting or playing guitar. Do you notice that? I love that thought. Um, well, I think there are so, yeah, the, the way I would answer that is uh, the other, th- I've also been bike riding about two hours a day. And I notice a lot of when I'm bike riding around, you know, the first half hour kind of sucks sometimes. But then when you get into the sort of after that first half hour, you enter a state that I feel is similar to the meditative state. And I find that I'm on the bike when I'm, if I'm not listening, so, you know, I'll listen to music sometimes, but if I'm not, suddenly I'll start thinking about a verse of a song and um, in a very meditative way, something else is, something's happening. 
and you sort of realize you just kind of find something. And yes, sitting there and allowing yourself for me, TM, and, and like you, I, I do it. Do you still do every morning, but not every afternoon? Yeah, no, no, I don't even do it every day. How, how often do you do it? I mean, it's sometimes I'll do it, you know, a couple of times a week. Sometimes I'll go three weeks without doing it. So my practice is pretty sporadic now. So I pretty much do it every day, but I've only been doing it like 10 years and you've been doing it like 30. So um, and sometimes I'll miss the uh, afternoon. I find the way that it's centering and the way that they. The way that uh, you become comfortable knowing that your mind will return back again to the place of calm, that even if it even if it drifts, even if you get lost in thoughts, you'll find your way back is useful in the songwriting thing for sure. Like, uh, but also I'm an amateur, you know, uh, I guess once this a- song on this album comes out, maybe I'm a professional, but <laughs> I'm an amateur songwriter. I'm not really a songwriter. I'm a professional writer, obviously for a 30, you know, 25 years, but, um, there's so I don't really know very much about it. I just know that I love doing it and that I love the uh, I love how hard it is. I love the fact that there's always like uh there's always like a compromise you could make when you're writing a song to make the thing just be finished. But mm-hmm. if you can fight your way to avoid that compromise and live in the uncomfortableness of not having solved it, when you eventually get to the solution, it just feels so good that it's worth it. I love that. It's funny. I recently heard an interview Paul Simon did about his song, You Can Call Me Al. And he was talking about, and, I, and it's funny, it's a story I feel like I've heard a million times, him bouncing a ball against a wall and just coming up stream of conscious lyrics, which is, a, that's a lot of how I write too. Like, I don't know the story, just write. But... um he talked about that and the sort of the way that becomes a meditation and then the things that come into your mind are less likely to be and then this is the key word that I that I jumped uh, that I grabbed onto predictable they're less likely to be predictable and so what you're saying I'm listening to you like it's easy to to settle on the thing that's predictable and just say well that's fine that's fine yep. right Yes. But if you don't settle, like if you push through that and find the thing that's more honest or vulnerable or real, like that's going to make it transcendent rather than just fine. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's like um, for me, this may be a weird thing, but like the reason I tend to respond to Jay Farrar, sometimes even more than Jeff, is like Jay will always come up with some strict there- you never feel like it's somebody settling. You always feel like he's saying whatever weird, strange thing landed inside of him, and he'll figure out what the fuck he's talking about later <laughs> if he has to. You know? Well, it's funny because now that you say that, uh, Tweety's songs to me tend to be more clever, right? But Farrar, it tends to really be like this meditative thing where you just kind of enter into this zone. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, totally. You're just in this world of J- you're just in this world of Jay Farrar and you 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 you're 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 uh I like both, but I'll say this. I love when a songwriter is also hyper specific. Yeah. Uh, uh so, you know, like jo- if I if I think about Paul Simon, like Josh Ritter lyrically does a lot of what Paul Simon does, I think, and like uh Josh is so for me, his he will he finds the exact right word and it may be that it's like uh 
not necessarily heart. It's head, but that's okay for me because it, it ends up getting to my 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 heart. And and Jason too, obviously, uh, I I think does that. And but you know who does the other thing is Phoebe Bridgers. Like Phoebe Bridgers is in that Paul Simon school. The the thing you're talking about of and 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 Jay Farrar, where Phoebe Bridgers. You don't even know why the stuff destroys you when you listen to it. You just end up destroyed. Yeah. It it's the sounds of the words as much as the words in a way. The it's feel. a God, it's, so it's evocative, maybe. More. Yes, somehow, right? I mean, so, that's why songs are so great because you can't – well, for me anyway, I sometimes just don't know why uh, a song just kills me. Do, do you know what I mean? It just it, – why it, 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 it takes me into a whole different – you know, almost nothing can change your day the way a, a song, hearing a song can. Mm -hmm. like, they say olfactory is the most uh, effective of all the senses. But I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, because I've thought about this a lot too, like all the different um, media uh, the, in which you can work as an artist. A song, I feel like, is the only one where you can take in a song and experience a song while also doing other like important things losing your virginity, you know, driving up to your high school for the last time, whatever, just like those things that they can, that carry weight and a song then becomes a part of that moment. Yeah. hundred percent. It, 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 I mean, that's why when we use songs and to do what I do, you know, what I really do making, making stuff, uh, you know, film and TV, you know, when you put the right song over something, you're recreating it. You're exactly right. This emotional, the sort of 360 degree emotional world that we get to have because we get to have music playing um, when we're doing all these things. Uh, it's funny, you know, I can remember exactly the songs that my daughter and I were playing when, when we took the school, like you said, you know, what dropped her college in the beginning or uh, that stuff really connects. It really connects heavily. And you're right. It marks your life. I mean, you must know that because people must come up to you all the time. And tell you which songs got them through what periods of I mean, imagine for you having this career for such a long time with such a devoted following, like, you know, big commercial highs and times that it wasn't as many people. But you've always had an incredibly loyal, like pretty fanatical group of people who love what you do, got on your wavelength and really care about you and your music. And I'm sure that people have said to you, dude, sophomore year, like if you wasn't for what you were doing, I would have I don't know how I would have made it through. And it must, does it, do you understand it when they say it to you? Does it, does it hit you in a, a good way? I try to remind myself too. Um, I mean, because I think the thing I want most out of my work is utility. Like I want it to be useful to people in their lives. Maybe it helps you get engaged or married. Maybe it helps you get through, you know, a really dark period. I mean, so if, if I can do that, because that's what music did for me when I was really struggling when I was really young and still does, I guess. Yeah, it, I think it does still. If it does for me, it not as easily, but it does it. Not as, you know, like I, it's possible. It's possible that Southeastern is the last album that ever that that ever takes over my whole life because <laughs> maybe I was still at the end of my forties. I was kind of in my forties when Southeastern came out, and it was such a monumental work that it demanded it demanded like me opening myself up fully to it. Whereas I don't know that. There have been great records, like the Phoebe Bridgers album, I think is amazing. There have been great records since then, and Jason's made great records since then. But that's the last time an album came out that I thought reset. No offense to anyone else who's made me, but, but where I thought everything just got kind of reset. And someone was said, you know, someone showed up who was like, 
well, look, I'm the best songwriter in the world now. And that's, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I mean, it was a crazy thing. If you think about it, like, I mean, uh, but I don't know. I would love an album to do that to me now. Um, maybe like that last Leonard Cohen album, that one song did it to me, but mm. it's harder and harder as you get older to allow yourself to get to the place where you're going to be broken open because putting yourself back together again becomes much harder. Yes. Kind of funny. It's funny. I can't even believe that you are writing songs during this pandemic and I haven't written one song. It, it's, it, I keep thinking about, and I brought this up when I talked to Charlie Crockett, who's a great songwriter the other day, there, there was that uh, New Yorker cartoon of a guy sitting in a rowboat in the midst of a, a lightning storm. And there's a, sh a cruise ship sinking behind him and there's shark fins circling his boat. And he says, uh, this is the perfect time to finish my novel. Right. That's how I feel. That's hilarious. No, I mean, for me, it's just been. Um, it allows me to. Well, again, there's no that. Listen, dude, the difference is like like I've had I have had a hard time occasionally over this writing what I have to write for my life. But writing songs for me is an escape. So, right. I don't there's no stakes in it for me. If, if I don't write a great verse and chorus, who cares? But um <laughs> But if I, you know, and if I do, it's just like um, a win. And, but it takes me away. And, and, and it's, um, and I've been writing with, I've been writing with really cool people who, uh, one thing I wanted to do. So one of the things I talk about, and I know what you talk about on, your, on, on this show, is I try really hard to allow myself to create whatever I want to create without letting my critical voice show up too early in the process. And because for years I was a blocked writer and I had uh, my critical voice was way too loud and it stopped me from doing anything. And so I let my critical voice come in after I've completed a first draft or after I've, if, I'm, if it's a song, you know, what, during the process as I'm letting it out. But one thing that I did was when I, I, I started writing a couple of these songs, I just threw them on Instagram. Like I threw a verse and chorus up with me just playing guitar and singing. Because I was like, dare yourself to embarrass yourself. Who fucking cares? Just put it up. If you're into this, fucking put it up. But then a couple of songwriters that I really admire, like commented and were like, you want to write a song together? And <laughs> um, and so like I've been writing songs with this great songwriter named Sinead Burgess, who's uh, an Australian who lives in Nashville and made an incredible record last year. And Dave Hawes and I have written a couple songs together. Who's a great songwriter. And um, it's it just Dave. uh I, w I didn't do that for that reason. I just put it up. But every time I put a song up, at, le at least some songwriter wrote me like, hey, we should do something together. And that gave me the confidence that like, OK, well, maybe I'm not just like, well, you know, they're going to waste their time on this. And now I'm um, Sinead and I are writing together once or twice a week for her, her record. And, and uh, it's been and like I said, I then this really scary thing of I, I right before the pandemic, I had an idea for a song and this was just lyrics. I had an idea for a song. And I was communicating with this guy who's a really big, like I said, a really big country star. And um, it was terrifying. But I thought, like, this title, I haven't heard this title before. And I think this is a title that could, I think this title could, like, actually be a song that this dude would care about. So I texted him and I said, I have this idea. You could just say no. Say no. I say no to people all the time about reading. Their, I won't read their scripts. Just say no to me. But I have this idea. Do you want to hear the idea? So he goes, tell me the idea. So I tell him the idea and the title. And he goes, that's a great idea for a song. I want to write that song with you. So I had actually then in between, I'd written the whole song. I'd written the whole lyric. So I go, 
I have a, do you want to hear some verses? And he's like, yeah. So I text him the verses and like 72 hours go by where I'm, I think I've ended not only I've ended the friendship, I've ended <laughs> like, I'm just sure that it's, uh, oh, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I'm walking around embarrassed. Like, I mean, you know, that feeling of when you expose yourself creatively and you just feel naked and like, you know, I just felt like, oh man, I got so far out over my skis and I should just give him the title, let him go write this. Like, what are you doing? This guy's had, you know, seven number one songs or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and then like three days later, four days later, um, I get a text when I wake up and it's him sitting with his guitar and he, he'd written the song to the lyric and, and he's like, Hey, tell me if this doesn't work. Tell me if it's not good. Uh, we can change it. We can do anything you want, but and I'm sitting there early, like in bed, having just woken up, watching this guy singing this song, this lyric. And it was so intense and beautiful to me. And then I still had to write off like, well, that's so cool that he did that. But then, then he demoed it with his band. And then I also just didn't. I'm like, that's amazing. This guy is not a close friend, just a guy I've become kind of friends with. And then I know three days ago, I'm just sitting around and he sent me a thing of him singing it in the studio with his band and the producer. And he's like, it's going on the record. And it, it's just been a crazy ex- thing to experience, you know, uh, but it started with taking this chance that I really did. I really did for three days think like I just felt like such a loser. I felt like such a uh, an emb- so embarrassed because it it meant so much to me, like the lyric <sighs> did the, the whole thing just meant the world to me. Uh, and then I, I felt so exposed and. Of course, we all tell the story to ourselves. So the story I told was, oh, he's embarrassed to write me back now because, you know, he didn't even mean it. But then, and, and, and of course, on his side, he got this lyric. He's a professional. He's like, oh, that's good. I'll work on it when I have time to work on it. I have to do 25 other things. Then he got to it. And then he said it to me. Like, he was just going through his motions of being a professional songwriter, musician, band leader, the whole thing. And I was telling myself a whole story of failure in that three days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I know how the, especially country music game goes like tomorrow, his A&R guy could be like, ah, I don't want that song on the record and this whole thing, but, but it doesn't matter. I, I have a recording of this guy singing the song that we wrote together. And that's, that, that's enough to make me excited when I pick up the guitar or to feel like I'm not a complete fraud when I want to do this, if that makes sense. Totally. I wonder about um, kind of the other way when you were you'd been working in the music industry and you yes. said you've been so blocked, but then you knew you wanted to be uh, like an actual creator of stuff and you wanted to write. How did you finally overcome that? And you weren't staying in your lane. I mean, you were in another lane. You were wanting to go to this whole other thing and write. And I'm wondering, how did you do that? How did you overcome the, you know, the the walls, the internal walls? I used I used uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. That's like the biggest thing, you know. Um, that book, David, my partner, lifelong best friend and creative partner. I remember I, the moment of crisis, you know, I was sitting in my office and li- had a stacks and stacks of demo tapes that I had to listen to. And I was eating a fucking cheeseburger and it was late at night and I was just miserable. Um, I'd never smoked a cigarette in my life and I was 29 and I was smoking. And um I had literally gotten a 29 without ever smoking even one cigarette. And I would had gone downstairs and like bought a pack of Marlboro Reds and I was sitting there smoking them. And I realized like, you know, cause I'd been smoking for six months probably. And, and I like looked at myself and the cheeseburger and the fucking cig. And I was like, what is this about? And I realized <laughs> that what it was about was, um, 
I was turning into a vision of something that I never wanted to be. I was going to be a dad who'd go home bitter. Uh, you know, if you allow your, if you allow the block to win, something inside of you dies. And like any other death, it's toxic. And, and I felt like that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people I loved. And I was like, I got to fucking change it. So Dave was tending bar across town. And I left and I went to Dave's, to the bar Dave was at. And I was like, dude, I'm melting down. Um, I have to finally, become, I have to write something and I don't know how I'm every time I try, I stop and I'm, and he, he was like, go from here to this spec when there were bookstores and like, you know, a bookstore every three blocks in Manhattan. And it was like, go to the bookstore and get this book called the artist's way. Do that right now. And it was probably like nine at night and the bookstores then stayed open till 10. Some of them stayed open till 11. And I remember I went to the bookstore and I got the artist's way and I started the next morning. And as soon as I started doing morning pages, you know, a week later, two weeks later, I was like in the flow, man. And I was like breaking through all these different blocks that I had. And I, I just interviewed finally 30, you know, 20, however many years later, I just interviewed Julia Cameron. That'll be up on my podcast the moment in a couple of weeks. And it was so great to get to thank her for what she did for me, um, which was changed my entire fucking life, you know? God, and that, <clears throat> and that is still what allows me. I mean, that is still the thing. I still do three pages of longhand journaling every single day of my life, no matter what I wake up, I meditate, I do my morning pages and the morning pages are the, they are the gateway to creativity for me. They're why I can pick up a guitar, and even though I'm a bad guitar, I'm a terrible guitar player, but they're why I can pick up the guitar and um, decide I want to do that, or they're why I could decide tomorrow I want to write a play, and I would find a way to write the play, or I'll write a short story, or you know, some magazine says, hey, do you want to go write about a sporting event? I'll go, like, the fact that I, I don't just get scared shitless to, to do this stuff is... A, a total result of just showing up every morning and writing longhand pages that remind me of who I am and who I am is someone who's not afraid to fail. They don't remind me that I'm great or anything at all. They remind me that great is beside the point. They remind me that the only thing that matters is the feeling I get in doing the work and that if I have the guts to do the work, it's possible something decent will come out of it. The worst thing that comes out of it is the feeling. I mean, it's that same feeling I got like this morning. I did my uh, 20 mile bike ride. And my slow ass 20 minute mile bike ride. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, um, as as annoyingly painful as, like I said, that first half hour is of uh, or riding up hills or riding into the wind. man, that feeling you get an hour later, like there's nothing else like that feeling. And w whether it was a good bike ride or a bad bike ride, I went out there and I did something hard and I got to the other side of it. And whatever else happened today, I accomplished something. And it's the same thing with morning pages. And it's the same thing with when I sit down to write a scene um, or a whole script. It's like, did I get something done? Did I try to tap into the part of myself that feels the most alive? And if I connected with the part of myself that feels the most alive for even a little while, then I call that day a victory. Because that also means once I've done that, once I've connected with that part of myself, that also means I can be really good to the people that I love. That means I'm not going to be bitter. That means I can do the mundane, annoying tasks. And it just hits me a little bit easier. It doesn't mean I like emptying the dishwasher and doing the dishes. It means that when I'm doing that, I don't feel like I'm defined by it. You know what I mean? It means that like when I'm doing that, like I'm in a little bit of a lighter space because I've lived in the ether for some time during the day. I've lived in that place where I'm just tethered, barely tethered to the earth, but hyper present at the same time. And that's when it's at its best. There are days when it just feels like pushing a boulder up a hill, but okay. Then I got an, a little bit of a workout and I pushed a boulder for a little while and I'm gassed for that reason. And, and, and I, I know when you talk about this stuff, it sounds like um, metaphysical and it can sound bullshitty. But 
like I don't know what else gives you know loving the people you love as well as you can and then doing the work that makes you feel alive those are the things that make me feel that those are the things that make me feel like there's a reason for being here and they're the things that make me be able to put my head down at night and feel okay about the way I've spent the day and so I've tried to build my whole life in a way that allows me to live like that it's not always easy to do you know and and there's a lot of failure attended to it but that's just the way that I that's the way that I try to I put habits in to try to make that possible. God, I, I love that so much. I admire the, the approach you take to this. And I mean, one thing that I, I don't know that you're even pointing out specifically, but I think is super useful is this idea that you can dedicate yourself. I mean, beyond even work ethic, just dedicate yourself to um, making daily routines that are positive things, you know, for, for creatively and just physically in terms of, you know, meditation and exercise. And, and you just do them day after day. I admire that. That's fantastic. That, well, if you do them day after day, then yeah, they, look, I just need them to other people don't need them. I need them to serve. I just need them to be, I need them to feel okay. Like, you know what I mean? I, it's not, it, I felt bad, you know, at meditation, if I didn't do it, I think my anxiety would be really bad. And I'm able to control anxiety even in times like this, because I take 20 minutes. I try to do it twice a day, but at least once a day. I take 20 minutes and, and each of those things, you know, exercise, meditation, morning pages. It's hard to have a really bad, look, you'll still have bad days. A lot of bad shit happens in the world. A lot of shit happens to you. But, but, but you have the, I have the best chance of having a, uh, a good day if I do those things, if I check those things off, you know. Um, I see you on the social media being really generous with your wisdom. It seems like uh, you, you give a lot of advice, you take a lot of questions, you respond to people in a really open and honest and kind of vulnerable way, which I, I admire that as well. So I wonder if you were to imagine going back and meeting the 21-year-old version of yourself working in today's world, what advice you might give that you? Well, at 21, I was still really trying to convince the woman who ended up marrying me to like give me the time of day and it was not going very well. Uh, so I would tell myself like, that's going to be okay. That's going to work out. Um, I would tell myself, don't worry about stuff that you can't control and don't catastrophize things and take small steps every day. And, you know, I would definitely tell my 21 year old self to start writing. I, I, look, I had a, I had a crazy existence, though, Rat, at 21. You know, I was on the road with Metallica, and I was a full A&R guy for Electra Records. So my 21 was pretty good. It wasn't like living. <laughs> well, it you know, I mean, it, I had a, it, it, I'm, it, I was not living the life I was meant to live, but it was a pretty, a, it was a pretty fortunate situation that I found myself in at that age. I mean, there were a lot of things I would have done. I would have done differently. Um, but, but I think even then I was like very curious and that's like the thing that ties all this stuff together is like lead with your curiosity. Like curiosity killed the cat might be the most irresponsible thing we ever tell kids. Yeah. Like, like, like curiosity is, I can't think of a more valuable tool that we just are born with than our curiosity. And if, and everything I, I, I've accomplished has come from a place of being curious about 
something. Then let that curiosity become a fascination and let the fascination become an obsession. You know, I was 19 and um, uh, I saw in the same year I saw She's Gotta Have It and Raising Arizona. And those two movies made me really curious about who wrote dialogue, about how dialogue was written. And, And like, I remember seeing those two movies and the world kind of just shifting completely, right? The, for days I walked around saying, you know, please, baby, please, baby, please, baby. And, and then Raising Arizona, for days I walked around saying every single thing, like Unpainted Huffheim. And I remember like wondering, like, how did these, you know, they're very different movies, but they're independent films from a certain era. And Spike Lee and the Coen Brothers are two of the greatest who ever did the thing. And I do remember distinctly that year walking around sort of understanding that there were people telling a certain kind of story and it didn't happen for me for years. And maybe at that time, I know at that time I thought I couldn't do it. I was just fascinated by it, but I thought I wasn't a writer. I, 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 I thought I could never finish anything. I had pretty bad ADHD. And I, 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 I would, I, I, if I wrote a paper, the first page would be amazing. Kind of like where I'd have a paragraph and, and, and like everyone would freak the fuck out that I could use words that well. But then it would just sort of like peter out and also I would just quit. Um, And I just felt like I don't have what it takes to show up every day and do work. So I would probably tell myself like, no, just write for a half hour a day. Like if you could just write for a half hour a day, every day, anything you want, something good will come of it. Mm. You know, because everything to me happened from writing. Like it all happened from writing, from just being willing to write. Uh, Learning to write is for anyone who does anything. I mean, you must know this. Don't you think the fact that you know how to use words like is the giant separating factor in your life like that you've put the time in? Like if you have to write someone an email, don't you know you can get your point across in a way that's interesting and funny and important? Like, you know, you know, you know how to do that. It's a big advantage. It's it's like this big, beautiful game that happens in my mind and the whole world is the playing field of it. And yeah, words are my favorite thing. Melodies are like a vehicle for the words. Yeah, melody amazes me. The fact that, like, I was talking to Jason about this. I, I asked him about how he found the melody for Tupelo. I was like, do you remember how you wrote Tupelo? And, and, and he's like, you know, no, no, man, nobody ever asked me about melody. And I, uh, he, That's he's a like, good Jason. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, but, but he goes, uh, uh, you know, he was talking about where the, how melody's the hard, maybe part of why guys like you, and you write amazing melodies, but maybe part of it is, it's probably hard for you to understand where the melodies come from, whereas you understand how you come up with the words. The melodies yeah. like come from the ether, don't they? They come from the sky. If you're lucky, yeah. Right, right. I mean, right, because you can't, can you sit down and say, I'm going to write a beautiful melody right now in the same way you, you do you know? You could, to- <laughs> you could, you could but, it, but you probably then just jinxed yourself because you just got to get lucky to write a beautiful melody. Right. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I imagine. I mean, that to me is the part that obviously comes the hardest, you know, once in a while. But like, uh, because it's not, I'm not, they're not, that, when I hear a great songwriter, that's the thing that where, you know, you bring up Paul Simon. I mean, Paul Simon, who is arguably, whatever, one of the five best who ever lived. It's hard. I was sitting around the other day playing um, Kodachrome. Yeah. Over and over again, just playing and singing it right over there. And and I was just like, how? And I was just trying to picture him just sitting there with his guitar, coming up with those chords and those words. And, and it's just, um, it's mind boggling to me. You know, like sometimes you'll play a Dylan song, but you, with Dylan, it's sort of like trying to understand how God made the Grand Canyon or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm an atheist, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how, and, 
with Dylan, like you, you know, you play Don't Think Twice for yourself, and and you're just like, I don't understand. Yeah. But uh, with Paul Simon, you can kind of see the effort that goes into it. Bob, I can't see the effort that went into it. Paul Simon, I get the effort that went into it, and it's so it's got a different kind of impressive, mind blowing quality to it for me. Oh my God, Brian! I feel like I could talk to you all day. Um, but th- thank you so much for giving me so much of your wisdom and your excitement. I, I love that about you. That I, you, I feel like you really do love talking about creativity. And is I mean, obviously you love you know being a creative person and creating things every day. So you're just you're living the life, man. Thank you. Thank you, Rhett. This has been really fun. Great to talk to you. Yeah, I hope we get to hang out IRL soon. Me too. All right, take care, man. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.